When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who entered the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. And the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the Lord, lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to, God, to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that the tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, but as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of, God, of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. And they sent therefore and gathered together all of the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city and the hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. It was 2015 and we had just taken, we were in youth ministry at this time in Durham, North Carolina and we had just taken uh, our group of students to summer camp, best summer camp I ever got to take youth to uh, because the teaching was on point. You know, sometimes you go and the teaching's really shallow and it's just watered down sort of Christianity and the whole campus full of students having fun. We had the fun. We also had great Bible teaching, which was amazing. But we got home from camp and I remember looking through the pictures from camp and I noticed that I was larger than I remembered being in these pictures. I was like, that's not me. <laughs> But I noticed that I was large, and I did not like what I saw. I weighed 245 pounds. Um, and I, just looking at this picture, I remember standing there. I'm wearing a green shirt. I'm looking at this picture. I'm wearing a green shirt in the picture. I don't remember what I was wearing while I was looking at the picture. But I look at the picture, and I'm just like... No. 
no, no. I made a decision right there. It was like this moment of conversion. And I was like, I have got to do something different because I'm tired all the time. I, I can't get as much work done as I need to do, right? I'm, I don't like the way that I look in, in pictures at all. I need to do something different. So I started doing research. I started studying, you know, how do I eat healthier? How do I make this lifestyle change? How do I do what I need to do to get where I want to be? And so I started reading books, and I started reading articles, and I started looking at blogs, and I started doing all of these things, learning how to live a healthy lifestyle regarding you know eating and getting the right kinds of of exercise and I started researching all of these things as I looked through books and read books and as I looked at articles and as I w- was reading blogs here is what I did not see not in a single book not in a single article not on a single health blog no one no one tried to make a healthy lifestyle relevant to the way that I was already living. Not a single one. They didn't say, you can live a healthy lifestyle and still eat Chick-fil-A chicken sandwiches for every meal and go get free Krispy Kreme donuts every time the hot and ready sign is not a single article said that not a single article tried to make it more relevant to me in the way that I was living in fact every go ahead laugh at that that's fine that's what I wanted to see I'll be honest I wanted to see you can have the spicy deluxe chicken sandwich at Chick-fil-A every day and still lose the weight you want. I, I, I would have loved to see that. Like the movie, uh, what is it, Bruce Almighty, where Bruce answers yes to all of the prayers and somebody's walking through the house, I lost 50 pounds on the Krispy Kreme diet. <laughs> it, it doesn't work like that, right? Every single book and article and blog that I saw, they were honest up front. This will be difficult. This will require change. And the goal was that people reading would change in response to the truth that is being presented to that person. Right? I look at the modern day church and the, the objective of Scripture is the salvation and the sanctification of God's people. Right? It's that we would look into this mirror of the law we would see our unrighteousness and we would be drawn to repentance, salvation by grace alone. And that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. Yet when we think about things like evangelism in the church, it seems like in large part in evangelicalism, the modern day church, right? We jump first to Okay, we need to be relevant. But see, we can't we can't both become worldly, expect worldly people to be changed in response to God. We can't have it both ways. And in fact, scripture would even go as, as far as to say you can't serve two masters. You will hate one and love the other. And so as we read the text today, we're going to see how God is Glorified, how he works for his own glory, even in, in the midst, among an unbelieving people. And how God works among unbelieving people in, in the world.
We're going to look at this text in two parts. First of all, we'll look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and and we'll see God's work for God's glory. And then we'll look at verses 6 through through 12, and, and we'll actually see the response of unbelievers, the natural response. This is always the response of worldly people who do not believe in Christ and who are not being saved, who are not the the people of God. Verses 1 and 2 say this, Now the Philistines, they took the ark of God, and they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God, and brought it to the house of Dagon, and set it by Dagon. Now, before we get to this part of the text, uh, we remember chapter four. Chapter four comes before chapter five. This makes sense. That part of the story comes before this part of the story. In that part of the story, Israel goes to war against the people of Philistia, the Philistines, and the Philistines win. And when when the elders of Israel come back to the war camp, they make this this statement. Um, they they ask this question: Why has God, our Lord God, defeated us? Before the Philistines today. See, the Israelites, they had this robust theology of God's sovereignty, a theology we saw in chapter 2, the first part of chapter 2, with Hannah's praise as she praised God. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 9, Hannah even makes this proclamation He, God, our Lord, keeps the feet of His godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness, for not by might shall man. Prevail. There is this robust theology of God's sovereignty and of God's provision in all things. When the Israelites lost the battle to the Philistines, they asked, Why has God defeated us before the Philistines today? When the Philistines claimed victory, it was understood that God, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, was the one who actually gave the Philistines victory. And we remember why the Philistines are still in the land of Canaan, right? We looked at this, we looked back to Joshua, and we saw that the the whole reason God has the Philistines in the land of Canaan with the Israelites is so that the Philistines would be a thorn in Israel's side, and so that the gods of the Philistines would be a stumbling block to the people of Israel. God is the one who is seen as sovereign, and God is the one who who, who is seen as, as providing all of things, victory and Defeat, Victory and defeat. After the Philistines defeat Israel, not once but twice, and after God's promise to the house of Eli is, is fulfilled and Eli's household dies in a single day, the Philistines capture the Ark of God's covenant. They capture this thing. In, in chapter 4, verse 3, or in chapter... 2 verse 9, or in chapter 4 verses 6 through 7, we see not only the sovereignty of God on display listed in the scriptures, but we see that the Philistines were actually aware of God's power. When the ark was brought into the, the camp of the Israelites, the Philistines went mad with fear and with trembling. Oh no, the ark is, is here. And they're wailing and they're screaming like they know they're going to be defeated because they've seen God's power on display. They were aware that the God who came with the ark of the covenant, the God of Israel, was the one who delivered Israel from Egypt. This is the God who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues. And the Philistines, they are 
fearful and they're terrified of what this God can do. They knew the power of God. They recognized the power of, of, of God, even though they did not know God or understand God. Through history, God has been working things out for His glory in such a way that even people who are not His people recognize Him and fear Him and tremble at His name. And eventually every knee will bow and every tongue will, will confess. But when the Philistines captured the Ark of God and brought it back to the land of Philistia, we need to understand what's going on here, right? The historical context of, of, this, of this passage. And it was the case whenever an enemy would, would defeat a nation, when one nation would defeat the other, part of their goal was to capture the gods of this nation and bring the gods of the defeated nation to their own homeland. And this was seen as a sign that the people that they have defeated have been entirely, completely, fully conquered. And so when the Philistines brought the Ark of God's Covenant back to Philistia, to Ashdod, they were doing that to signify that that Israel was completely conquered, wholly conquered, fully conquered. And this is the way that it was perceived by the Philistines. And in their, their minds, they weren't claiming victory in just one battle, even though that turns out to be the reality, right? They just won one battle. But they captured the Ark of God, and they brought the Ark of God back. They saw Israel now as a nation that has been conquered by the Philistines, by Philistia. Glory to Philistia. We have conquered the Israelites and we have defeated their powerful God. This is what was going through their, their minds. Now what strikes me is very interesting here in this passage is when the Philistines, they get the ark back to Ashdod and they actually take the ark into the temple of Dagon and they set, they set the ark by, by this idol, this man-made idol, Dagon. Dagon um, was was the father of Baal. And you've heard the name Baal, the storm god of the Philistines, of the Canaanites. Dagon was his father, presumably, right? They're fake, false gods, they're idols. But Dagon was seen as the father of the storm god, Baal. What strikes me as interesting, just very interesting in this passage, is that the Ark of God was actually brought, and it was set by Dagon. The word by there means... Um, in close proximity to or in connection with. The Ark of God was not placed in a position that was subordinate to Dagon. The Ark of God was not placed in a position that was less prominent than the God of Dagon. It was set by, next to, in close proximity with, in connection to Dagon. Like the Philistines have recognized the power of God. They feared the power of God. They captured the power of God 
in battle, and now they want to add the power of God to the temple of Dagon. They want to utilize the power of God. They want this God, the God of Israel, now to work for them like Dagon works for them because they recognize the power, absolute power of God. Hindus in the world today will do this with Jesus. We have missionaries who go to India and they're sharing the gospel and the people of India, Hindus in India, they hear the name of Jesus and that sounds great. Victory over sin and death. We want this. And so they they take Jesus and they add Jesus to their pantheon of other gods there beside their other gods. People who claim to be Christians do this with the power of of God, particularly in, in modern day evangelicalism, we want to take the power of God and the victory of God, and we want to take it and we want to place it in in our own context. We want the power of God our way rather than following Jesus, rather than submission and repentance. We just want to go in and we want to claim this victory and we want to take God and we want to make God work for us in some way. This is where you get churches whose their primary concern is we need to be relevant to the culture. We need to take God and we need to subject God to the culture, to society, rather than just call people to repentance, rather than just preach the gospel. I think one of the greatest failures of the modern day Christian church is that We don't see the sufficiency of Scripture. We don't see the sufficiency of Christ. We want to water it down with all of this other stuff. And we wonder why we don't experience the power of God in churches because we're not following God. We're trying to take the power of God and transplant it into some other context we think it should be in so that we can look more like the world. People who claim to be Christian... We'll, we'll do this. Try and bring the power of God into their own temples, literal temples or metaphorical temples so that they have an excuse to follow some latter-day prophet. Right? Even though the Scriptures are clear, God does not share His glory with anyone. Even though Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, No, there are no more prophets. God has given His final word through His Son, Jesus Christ. Yet people want to take the power of of God because they recognize it, because it's desirable, because by the power of God we claim victory over sin and death, and they want to take the power of God and they want to transplant it into some religion that refers to itself as Christian but isn't really Christian. And some examples of this would be like Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witness and, and Ecclesia Ni Cristo and the Seventh-day Adventists. And there are many others that try and do this, but, but they're not following Christ. They're taking what they perceive to be the power of Christ and they're transplanting it into some other religious worldview that doesn't, doesn't match the Bible at all. In fact, the gospel that is taught is quite opposite than the gospel we see in the Bible. So there are a few ways that the religions of the world, even people who claim to be Christians, will do exactly what the Philistines are doing here. Taking what they perceive to be the power of God 
and trying to transplant that into their own lifestyle. You go to the doctor, or you have a personal trainer, or you join a a health club or a, a diet program, and never have I seen someone try and get somebody into a diet program or to join a health club or a fitness club by offering free, supersized Big Mac value meals to people who sign up. But this is the very thing, for some reason, that the church has has reduced itself to doing in evangelism and in reaching people with the gospel as if the word of God isn't sufficient to accomplish exactly what it means to accomplish. Verse 3. When the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. Well, that's weird. Our idol, Dagon, is on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe it's a coincidence. We will prop our God back up. Do you realize the irony here? We have to set our God back up on his little pedestal next to the ark. But it's a, it's, this is a coincidence. We'll set him back up. Everything's, everything's fine. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Not a coincidence anymore. It might be a coincidence if the idol just falls over. There might have been a little tremor or something, you know, whatever. But now he's decapitated and his hands are cut off. This is no coincidence. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. In the last chapter, we saw God defeat Israel. We saw that God was in the business, not of elevating His people or promoting His people or putting His people on a pedestal. God, God has proven Himself through 1 Samuel to be concerned with, with achieving His own glory within His creation. He is the one to be recognized. He is the one to be praised. He is holy. He is the one with power. He is righteous. He is the one with mercy. In the last chapter, we saw God defeat His own people. Here, the ark of God is taken into a foreign land, the land of the enemy. God gave the Philistines victory, and now He is defeating the false god of the Philistines, subjecting in a hilarious way Dagon to himself. And the Philistines begin to fear. They don't even step on the threshold where, where Dagon's, body, Dagon's body lay. I don't, that doesn't make sense. That's the best way I can describe it. Where Dagon's body, his head decapitated, uh, his hands cut off, and, and this idol 
made from human hands is now prostrate before the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, he's not just prostrate, he's dead symbolically. God, the God of Israel, has killed Dagon. Dagon wasn't alive in the first place. But we get the imagery, right? We get this imagery. We transplant this story to our own day. (laughs) And as the modern day church, we would be asking something like, how do we reach the Philistines? How do, we, how do we take this law and make it relevant to the Philistines so that the Philistines would feel comfortable coming into, coming into the tabernacle and doing tabernacle with us? How do we make this relevant to them? Look, if we read through the Bible, we read the actual story of the Bible, we see that God operates in in a way that is completely contrary to this as He seeks His own glory among the nations. And instead of making His law relevant as if He is somehow subjected to culture and society, instead, God is in the business of defeating people. He is in the business of defeating the gods of the world. And to somehow think that the church's responsibility is to make the Bible relevant to society is is to completely ignore almost every verse in the Scriptures that declare the glory of God and the work of God and the sovereignty of God and the providence of God and the actual gospel of Jesus Christ. It's to fail to believe that the Scriptures are sufficient And it's to fail to believe that when we go share the gospel, the thing that is to be on our lips is the story of Christ. And that is the thing that wins people to Christ, is the word of Christ, by the working out of the Holy Spirit. Here, God defeats Dagon. God defeats Dagon. We wonder, isn't it the case that as the people of God... We have the responsibility to try and draw people into the church, somehow fulfilling some desire that they have so that they will come in and and magically hear the gospel of, of God. Don't we have this responsibility to do something that appeals to culture, to bring people in? James, who wrote the letter of James... That makes sense. James wrote the letter of James. Actually spoke on this explicitly in his letter. First of all, he he says the desires of people, they cause conflict in the church. Why are there fights and quarrels among you? It, It is your desires. It is because you try and fulfill your desires and and the desires of other people. In chapter 4, verse 1 of the book of James, he identifies this. It is your pleasures that wage war in your members. And so to say that in some way the church has to be relevant to draw people into the church, it is to submit to something that wages war within our members, within the church, within culture, within society. And I think if we're honest with ourselves and we observe society, we observe culture, we're going to see that this holds true. It's the desires of people that wage war. 
draw people into sin, bring people to death. Chapter 4, verse 3. You do not receive when you ask because you ask with wrong motives. And so we see that the motives of the human heart in making things relevant and succumbing to desires and elevating the, the pleasures and the desires, the wants, the perceived needs of, of people, it's actually idolatry and God doesn't answer prayers that we ask on those basis because we are asking with wrong motives that we may spend it on our pleasures. And so we see not just in 1 Samuel but now also in the New Testament in the book of James James is speaking against this tendency in the church such that this tendency is in the church is entirely contrary to God's instruction both in the Old Testament as God has revealed himself and in the New Testament God doesn't change right Verse 4 in James chapter 4 you adulteresses Ow. Vody Bakum would say, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Ouch. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of, of God. Look, just like, just like if we're on a diet or if we're trying to be healthy, trying to get the, the right exercise that, that our bodies need, did you know that not every person requires the same sort of exercise? Did you know that not every person requires exactly the same diet? Those things are pretty specific to the individual, the genes that we're created with and the certain genetic code that, that we are programmed with. It's kind of interesting. But just like we can't get into a good diet or a good exercise routine and also eat fast food every day, right? The church, the church can't both submit to Christ, follow after Christ, pursue the righteousness and glory of God alone, Seek first the kingdom of God and also be worldly. We can't. Friendship with the world is enmity with God, which is devastating for any body or group or person or ministry whose primary goal is just to be relevant, to look worldly in order to attract worldly worldly people. Friendship with the world is enmity toward God. This this also means for us, right, that if a church hopes to be a, a healthy church, if a congregation hopes to be a healthy congregation, if we yearn to follow after God and we yearn to give Him everything that we that we are everything that we have and we we really wish for the scriptures to be changing us this means that people who are worldly will never feel comfortable in a godly church 
because friendship with the world is enmity toward God. We, we desire for sinners to come in and be with us and be among the people of God. And we desire for sinners to hear the gospel and, and to believe and repent and be conformed to the image of Christ. We desire to see sinners change and to reject a righteousness that is of themselves and be clothed in a righteousness that is God's. We desire sinners to experience this in Christ Jesus. And this is the very reason we cannot cater to the ways of the world or to sinners. Because if the church is worldly, no one will experience that change. Just like someone who goes to a doctor or gets into a a diet program or joins a health club or a fitness club will never experience change if, if the fitness club just looks like a McDonald's and feels like a McDonald's and serves the same sort of food that McDonald's serves. Now, the church is meant to be different, holy, set apart from the world. James chapter 4, verse 8. James writes this, Therefore draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. So those who are overly concerned with relevance rather than preaching the Word of God, those who are concerned with looking or appearing to be or feeling like the world in order to make people feel comfortable, Scripture, scripture calls us sinners calls us to purify our hearts, tells us that we are double-minded. We know that we can't serve two masters. We will end up hating one and loving the other. Hating one and loving the other. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Now, the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, And he ravaged them and smote them with tumors. But Ashdod and its territories. When the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us and on Dagon, our God. Here we start to see the response of unbelievers. The Philistines, they had seen the power of God recognized the power of God. They did not understand God. They did not know God. But they recognized His power, wanted to claim the power of God for themselves. But God, not only did He kill the false god Dagon, symbolically, right, because Dagon wasn't actually alive, but now He begins to, to smite the Ashdodites, the people in the city where the ark of God is. And coming into contact with God, noticing God's holiness and God's just nature, the fact that God hold, holds all people accountable for their sin, for their unrighteousness, for their wretchedness. Instead of coming to repentance, they rejected the things of God. They just outright re- get this thing out of here. We want nothing to do with the Israelite God. He is ravaging us. He is smiting us. Get His ark out out of here, this symbol of 
of God's power and God's covenant with God's people. Get this thing out of here. We, don't, we, we want nothing to do with this. When, when worldly people come into contact with the things of God, when people who are sinners come into contact with the things of God, with the law of God, with the message of God, with the gospel, with the power of God and the victory of God, if God is not calling the people to repentance, if this is not God's chosen people, the response is rejection. Not only is it rejection, but the things of God are expelled from among the people. The people run from it or cast it out, excommunicate those who are godly and those who actually follow after God. See, our, our thought is the church, when it comes to things like evangelism, when it comes to, when we think about church growth, right? When it comes to sharing the gospel, no matter how pure our motives are, and we say things like, we need to do whatever it takes to attract people to come here. When the biblical message is clear, those who do not love God, who do not follow God, who only want the power of God and the victory of God without actually following after God, they will reject the things of, of God. They will not go into the church you cannot convince them to go into the church. And we read this part of the story, and it's like so different from the way that so many Christians believe. When we believe that if we do the right stuff, we can get people to come in, and people will receive salvation because we have done the right stuff. We've this is not at all how we see God working in the Old Testament or the New. And Christ is building His own church. And even among His enemies, God is seeking His own glory, even though because of their nature they will not believe. If our goal is to grow a church... I have a couple of ideas for us if that's our goal. Can I share them with you? Please, let me share them with you. If our goal is to grow a church, to see our numbers increase by, by extraordinary amounts, by exponential degrees, we can do a couple of things. First of all, we can give away a bunch of free stuff. We can give away the latest technology. We can give away money. We can have one of those money cyclones in the service, and, you know, we can do that. We can launch t-shirts out into the crowd. We can do this stuff. We can hype it up. We, we, we can give away, during the Sunday morning service, free beer. The whole community would show up. The whole world would show up to our services People would start listening to the, to the podcast. People would start watching the videos. We would become a worldwide phenomenon. The, the news outlets would come and they would want to interview us. Glory. Hallelujah. Jesus. Another thing we could do is we could just entertain people into coming, right? Make sure we do things in such a way that the right chemicals are released in the brain and people get addicted to entertainment. 
I can start delivering motivational speeches. I could have a sermon series <laughs> titled At the Movies. It breaks my heart to see the church doing these very things. This is not the way that God works. Y'all, this grieves my heart. Do you know that? I hope that you do. When you go to the doctor's office, the doctor doesn't have you look into a mirror. And unbeknownst to you, it's one of those skinny mirrors. And you look at it and you're like, Yes, thank you, doctor. doesn't benefit anyone, right? Well, we can't be into this fast food version of Christianity, supersize me version of religion. We look to the law, to the Old Testament text and the New Testament text, And according to Deuteronomy chapter 31 verses 26 through 29, Romans chapter 5 verses 20 and 21, and Galatians chapter 3 verses 19 or 22, the law was meant for us to look and to see ourselves like in a mirror and to see all of our flaws so that we know our need for grace in Jesus Christ. And so that the people of God are sanctified, made better, changed, conformed to the image of Christ. God God isn't concerned with making His law relevant. He's concerned with His glory, saving a people for Himself. Bringing His people to believe in Him, to repent before Him, to be conformed to the image of His Son, not to conform His message to culture or society. If we were worthy to have the message of God conformed to us, made relevant to us, we would not need a Savior. We would not need somebody to rescue us from our current condition and our unrighteousness. Christ would be more like a celebrity than God. No, instead, the Bible is convicting church is a place where believers come and are sanctified and we're hopefully sinners here the message of God and are brought by God to repentance before God because God is holy and God is sovereign and He is King and we brothers and sisters are not verses 8 through 12 so they the Philistines the Ashdodites So they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines to them and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They're trying to get rid of this thing, remember? And they said, Let let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. Let's send it to another town and see see what happens. You don't already know what's going to happen. And they brought the ark of God of Israel around. After they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great confusion. And he smote the men of the city, 
both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And as the ark of God came to Ekron, the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. Now they know. Now they know what's going on. Verse 11, They sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place so that it will not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. Where does this fit in our theology? Where does this fit in the majority view of who God is? And instead of teaching about the repentance and the justice and the holiness and the glory of God, the church today is reduced to, to just offering this blanket statement, right? God is love. And repentance is never mentioned. We're walking through the, the Gospel of Matthew on Wednesday nights, and what, what we saw about Jesus' message is that Jesus began his entire preaching ministry with one word, repent. And he gave one reason, for the kingdom of God is here. Referring to himself and his coming and his death and resurrection. Repent. That's what the scriptures call us to. Not try and be cool. Scriptures don't call us to look like the world. And call us to repentance, to change, conformity to Christ. And this is beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. In the last chapter, we saw that God's hand was against His own people for the sake of their humility. In this chapter, we see that God's hand is against all nations, particularly the Philistines, right? For the purpose of their humility. So that God is exalted, so that God is glorified, so that people are drawn to repentance. And those people who aren't drawn to repentance, they reject God. Romans is Paul's broad commentary on the Old Testament. Paul was, he was a, a master scholar, an academic of the Old Testament. He studied the Old Testament. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, knowing the law, keeping the law, according to his own words. Right? The tradition tells us that he was studying. In fact, he was, he was about to become a member of the Sanhedrin. Probably a student of Gamaliel. Even though we don't see those things in the Scriptures. It's tradition. But Paul wrote this broad commentary on the Old Testament in, in the form of a letter to believers in Rome. And in Romans chapter 9, verses 16 through, through 24, it provides the perfect commentary for, for stories like the one we are reading in the Old Testament. And he writes this, So then... It, and if we look back to chapter 9, verse 4, we see that it, it refers to adoption as sons. So then, 
our adoption as sons of God does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. There is nothing we can do to come to faith on our own. We cannot will or run work to come into adoption in Christ as sons of God. And there is no strategy or tactic we can come up with to cause other people to to come to God in Christ to be adopted as sons. The only one on whom this depends is God who has mercy. He is sufficient. His word is sufficient. And then, Paul goes on to talk about what the Scriptures say because the Scriptures are sufficient. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh... For this purpose, I, this is God, for this purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. God raised up Pharaoh. This man who, according to the description of the Old Testament, is evil and against God and who holds God's chosen nation captive in slavery and and forces upon them the labor of the Egyptian nation for the purpose of God's name being proclaimed throughout the whole earth. God is concerned with His own glory, and this is why He works things together the way that He does. Verse 18, So then, He, God, has mercy on whom He desires, and He hardens whom He desires. Verse 19, You will say to me then, Why does He still find fault for who resists His will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God, who counsels God, who tells God the right way to reach people and bring people into it? Who are you, O man? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Did you catch that? Beforehand, God created vessels for glory, those who will be adopted as sons, and vessels for common use, vessels for wrath, who will not be adopted as sons. And God has created these two types of vessels, and He has endured vessels of wrath, prepared for wrath, so that God Himself will be known, and everything about God will be known. We have a tendency to make the gospel more about us than about God. The whole gospel, everything about the gospel is about the glory of God. The belief and the repentance of God's people by God's work, by God's hand. 
and the sanctification of God's people, the transforming of God's people, the changing of God's people, the conforming of God's people to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Not for them to be elevated, but for the glory of God. And you understand why people who do not love God flee from godly churches. And you understand why in so many churches the things of God are being expelled for the sake of relevance or for the sake of tickling people's ears. Well, first of all, it's because this message is just hard to receive because we like ourselves. We yearn for relevance. We want things to apply to our lives. God's desire is that we'd be changed, transformed, conformed to the image of Christ, that our desires become different, that the church looks different from the world. That's why when Paul gets to chapter 12 and verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed any longer to the ways of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that so that you will be able to test and approve God's will his good and pleasing and perfect complete will see it benefits no one it benefits no one when the church seeks to look like the world to do the things of the world in order to attract people to sit in her seats. It doesn't benefit anyone. Christ is not the great personality, the great MC. He's the great physician. And when we look into the mirror that He has provided, it is to effect change, lasting change, real change for our good And if that is what we reject, then we have rejected the whole gospel and we do not have life. Scripture is pretty clear about that. It's the very thing people ignore for the sake of relevance. The reality is, this is the most relevant message. It's the same through all time. In fact, it is so relevant that it is not subject to culture or society or the preferences, desires, demands of people in any generation. This is the Word of God. And God's glory is the glory for which we were created in Christ Jesus to do those good works which He has prepared ahead of time for us to do.